Welcome to Crashing the War Party. As always, I am joined by my intrepid co-host, Daniel Larison, who comes up from air from his amazing writing at Unomia once a week to talk about the military-industrial-congressional complex and its effects on foreign policy here and abroad. Make sure to check out his regular posts on Substack. And a special shout out to our producer, Remzo Martinez, who has been an ace editor, friend, and loyal listener, and not just because he has to, since we launched our first episode in April 2021. In our second segment, we will be talking to Michael Swain, a prominent expert in Chinese security studies about ongoing U.S.-China tensions and what to do about it. But first, let's look at some headlines, including some that might have gone under your radar over the last week. Dan, I'd like to start with the uh, U.S. signing a new security agreement with Bahrain. According to reports late last week, the Comprehensive Security Integration and Prosperity Agreement with Bahrain commits the United States, quote, in the event of external aggression or the threat of external aggression against Bahrain to, quote, immediately meet at the most senior levels to determine additional defense needs and to develop and implement appropriate defense and deterrent responses as decided by the parties, including in the economic, military, or political realms and or political realms. An anonymous administration official took pains to point out that while the agreement is not a treaty and therefore does not need approval by the U.S. Senate, it is still legally binding, whatever that means. Um, Dan, they're calling for the, they're calling this a dry run uh, for the big enchilada, which would be a U.S. security pact with Saudi Arabia, which that country has been seeking for a long time. And now it's on the table as sort of a bargaining chip for our um, push for Saudi to sign a normalization agreement with Israel. Um, while it's not clear that Bahrain will ever be attacked ostensibly by Iran, Tehran has been blamed for attacking Saudi oil facilities as recently as 2019, and the two have had their share of tensions. In any case, a deal that would commit U.S. troops to defending the king, Kingdom of Saud is so much more controversial. Um, so maybe they're prepping Congress and the American public by inking this, inking this one with Bahrain first. What are your What are your thoughts on this deal and what it means? Uh, yeah, thanks, Kelly. I, I think you're right that this is an attempt to do sort of a test run to expand or, or increase our security commitments in the Persian Gulf. Uh, doing it first with with a small state that's not as controversial in the U.S. mainly because it's not that well known, uh, even though for, for all intents and purposes, Bahrain's policies are the Saudi government's policies. They're they're heavily influenced by what the Saudi government wants, and and the Saudi government, of course, was instrumental in propping up that government uh, back in 2011 when there were protests against it as. Uh, as part of uh, what was then called the Arab Spring, uh, and of course those were, those protests were brutally down with the help of the Saudi military. This was one of the the early uh, signs that the Saudi government was going to push back very hard against any sign of uh, popular uh, protest or, or or democratic reform in any part of uh, the Middle East or North Africa, um, and so. I think it's it is intended to be a signal to the Saudis that the U.S. is serious about trying to to pursue this security guarantee for them, 
Uh, and it's also uh, further entrenching our role in the Persian Gulf and in, and in the region uh, more widely. And as such, I think it's a, a mistake. It, it's taking us in the wrong direction again. Uh, the, the Biden administration has been consistently moving in the wrong direction uh, with respect to these client governments, uh, putting more and more uh, U.S. troops in the region, uh, making additional commitments, uh, ma making additional promises of future assistance. And so I think that's... Uh, a big mistake, and uh, and I hope not, not a prelude of an even bigger one to come. But that's that's what it looks like. Yeah, and uh, Quincy just uh, commissioned a poll on the issue of Saudi Arabia and U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia being committed in any future pact or U.S. troops in the Middle East writ large. And you know, it there was a mixed bag. I mean. It, 58%, I believe, of Americans said they did not want a deal that committed U.S. troops to Saudi Arabia, but it's still not a, a serious majority. I think that there is more work to be done uh, in terms of getting out there to the American public what uh, our relationship should be with Saudi Arabia and whether or not that should entail these uh, defense agreements that would keep us further entrenched, our military further entrenched in the region, uh, particularly on behalf of a kingdom that is um, so deplorable in terms of its human rights record, um, and, it's, and, and in so many other ways, it's a it's a despot. And all of these um, countries there in the Persian Gulf are run by absolute monarchies. Is that? where we're going as a country to just like start handing out defense agreements to a bunch of despotic monarchies who mistreat and repress their people. I didn't think so, but it does seem like it's going in that direction without a lot of input. So uh, what is your, your next headline, Dan? So, uh, so the big headline, the, the one that's getting a lot of attention this week, uh, this is one that people probably have heard of. Uh, is the the story this week uh, where the Canadian Prime Minister has announced that the murder of a Sikh community leader in British Columbia uh, was carried out uh, with the assistance or, or or by agents of the Indian government, uh, supported by Indian intelligence, uh, and of course this was a, a huge uh, bombshell that he dropped and did so publicly. I guess he had brought it up at the G20 meeting directly to Modi before, and Modi blew him off and and didn't. Take it seriously. Uh, so he, now he's going public with it uh, and bringing this accusation in front of the world. And uh, it's it's doubtful that he would do that unless he had fairly solid evidence uh, implicating Indian intelligence in being involved in this assassination. Uh, and and so the, the worrisome thing here, uh, and the story uh, was picked up by by all the big outlets. Uh, New York Times reported on it uh, under the headline: Justin Trudeau accuses India of a killing on Canadian soil. Uh, and it's a it's a big deal not only in that Canada is publicly accusing them, uh, but that the Indian government is now apparently targeting members of the diaspora uh, uh, for execution, uh, provided that these these members of the diaspora are considered terrorists in the eyes of the Indian government. Now the 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 man who was killed, uh, Hardeep Singh Nijar, uh, was a Sikh community leader. Uh, he was a a vocal proponent of the uh, creation of an independent Sikh state in Punjab. Uh, but as far as I've been able to determine in, in the reporting that I've seen, he hasn't actually been in, implicated in any uh, violent activities. He's been calling for a referendum 
for the establishment of this state. Of course, it would not be recognized by the Indian government, but he's trying to organize one as a way to demonstrate uh, the extent of support for uh, for this idea. Uh, of course, there was a, a big insurgency uh, in support of this goal back in the 80s and early 90s, but this hasn't been a live issue as, as a real conflict now for decades. So it's it's bizarre that the Modi government, if, if these allegations are true, it's bizarre that they would seek out this this guy and and have him killed uh, when it's it's sure to do far more damage to their international reputation and their standing with not just with Canada but with all Western governments. Uh, and so it's it's a very strange choice that they've made if that's indeed what happened. Um, and I think it puts the U.S. in a real bind because here you have a supposed partner nation targeting the citizen of our one of our closest allies and a, and a neighbor uh, for a targeted assassination, and it's it's, it's completely unacceptable. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's it's going to have huge consequences for the the Indian Canadian relationship. They've already been expelling each other's diplomats as a result of this, uh, but I think it's also going to put a, a real uh, uh, can have a cooling effect on the U.S.-Indian relationship because there's there are going to be legitimate questions about what kind of government it is that we're partnering with uh, when when they're prepared to do things like this. I think a lot of people in Washington were willing to look the other way when Indian repression was simply happening in Kashmir or was being targeted against Muslims in, in India. And now you know, we're seeing it being directed outwards uh, into the diaspora, which uh, also has implications for uh, Indian Americans uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think that that would be the trajectory of the conversation, that people would start waking up to all of the um, political repression and intimidation uh, that Modi's government has been engaging in uh, for some time now. But then we look at Saudi Arabia, in which they're behind the you know, the murder and dismemberment of a U.S. Uh, it, was he a U.S. citizen, uh, Jamal Khashoggi? Uh, he, uh, he was a resident. Permanent he was resident. a resident and a journalist for the Washington Post. And uh, we're about to give them a, a defense agreement. So I, I think that this I think this just puts in stark relief the differences between uh, the uh, geopolitical realities and our hopes and aspirations for um, creating a more democratic world. And in so many cases, we see that the Biden administration or any administration in Washington uh, over the last uh, decades are going to choose their geopolitical interests over, um, you know, what we would think and what they profess to be democratic values. So in this case, I mean, Modi's government has been accused of some really bad things, particularly um, the, the nationalism that has really marginalized and put in danger uh, the Muslim uh, communities there. And we have turned a blind eye to that because we want them on our side against China. And so that is going to take precedence. I do agree with you that it gets a little sticky when it's our neighbor to the north that's having the particular issue and uh, a, a Sikh independence activist being assassinated in cold blood right in public. And I highly doubt that Justin Trudeau would go public with this um, indictment 
uh, this charge if he didn't have sufficient evidence because it is creating super uh, diplomatic fallout. So, um, yeah, it's going to it's it'll be interesting to see how Biden reacts to this. Probably uh, he'll he'll probably be very supportive of, of Trudeau behind the scenes, but I don't know if he will do much to make Modi angry at this very particular, this moment, uh, considering the, the whole China issue. Um, my next headline is, is Zelensky. Uh, he is at the UN this week. We're recording on Tuesday. You'll be hearing this on Friday, but I, I wanted to talk just in a general theme. I mean, he just, uh, sacked, uh, his entire defense ministry, all of his uh, de- deputy defense ministers, uh, ostensibly because he wants to show the West that he is cleaning house of any corruption, though there hasn't been any official reason given for him firing all of these deputy defense ministers. But, you know, he's out making the case to the UN. Uh, then he's going to, he's expected to ri- arrive in Washington on Thursday. So uh, yesterday, by the time you hear this, um, you know, there is much talk in Washington about waning um, support for giving Ukraine more aid uh, on top of the $113 billion that were what, that was allocated last year. But personally, Dan, I, I think that the Biden administration is behind him uh, for the very reason that I don't know if they can turn around at this point and say, um, we're cutting off the spigot because they've made this a uh, existential fight uh, for world um, freedom and peace and, and democracy. And I don't see any indication that there's any waning support in the administration right now for Zelensky. Uh, no, I think that's right. And, and I think that's also mostly true in Congress. I think there's there are some people that have been supportive of the policy up till now that are beginning to have their doubts because the counteroffensive hasn't gone terribly well. Uh, but overall, I think you still have majorities in both houses that are going to vote this stuff through, and obviously Biden's going to sign it. Um, so, so in that sense, Zelensky coming in and uh, lobbying for for more assistance may may not be necessary right now. But I think he's going to find it uh, much harder, maybe in a year or two, uh, to keep getting the same kind of assistance because people are going to start asking, "What is it actually yielding? What what are we?" What are we seeing as a result of this? Uh, unless it's just a stalemate, and, and it, as it as the stalemate sinks in, uh, going into the autumn, that's I think that's going to begin to to raise more doubts uh, that that are going to you know, gradually put pressure on the administration to to rethink some things, or at least to, to leave the door open to some kind of negotiated settlement. We'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Swain to Crashing the War Party. Michael is a colleague of mine at the Quincy Institute, where he is a senior research fellow specializing in Chinese security studies. He comes to QI from Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. 
Swain served as a senior policy analyst at the RAND Corporation as well. He is the author of numerous books and papers, including two pertinent briefs proposing a more restrained but effective security arrangement for the U.S. in the Asia region. Welcome to the show, Michael. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be on it. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, there's a lot of tension, obviously, in Washington right now over China. While it's easy to discern between the real hawks like Republican Mike Gallagher, who's the chair of the Select Committee on China, um, who sees a Chinese threat around every corner, and those who want to engage directly with Beijing and directly tamp down the anti-China rhetoric, um, there are others um, who are sort of like in the middle. They they question whether we are being realistic, that at some level China does pose a threat to its neighbors and to American interests in the region, and that the U.S. military can serve as a deterrent rather than an accelerant. For example, an acquaintance of mine on the restraint side uh, said to me just last week um, that it's not saber-rattling if members just want to ensure the U.S. and its partners have the resources, for example, weapons, to defend themselves and deter China, and right now they do not. So they, they do need um, enhanced uh, defense budgets uh, to address this. How, you know, and I found myself having a, a little bit of a difficulty responding quickly and effectively to that. How would I respond um, to questions that seem earnest and sincere about our level of um, engagement militarily in, in, in China's backyard? Right. Well, I think it's a common reaction. I mean, people... You know, people look at the situation and they say, well, China is growing. It's big. It's it's not democratic. It's it's got a high growth rate. It's it's it's, it's acquiring more and more military capabilities. Um, and it, it it's threatening to our interests. Therefore, we need to just sort of double down on deterrence, make sure they don't do anything untoward or anything really uh, reckless. But I think you have to ask two questions about that when you when you consider first is exactly what are U.S. interests? And how how immutable are they? And and what what you know what is what is negotiable? What is not negotiable? And you know what you really have to stand by and and draw a red line under. Um, so that's one set of things, and that and that is not necessarily obvious in every case. So people have to talk about what are the interests that you're trying to to to, to protect through deterrence, and are they legitimate interests? Are they interests that will go on forever, or can we alter them in some way that might improve the U.S. Uh, situation? That's one. And the other thing is that people need to understand that in almost all cases, deterrence does not just mean military and economic punishment or threats of punishment to try to get the other side to do or avoid doing certain things. For deterrence to be effective, it has to combine both what you might call prospective punishments of some kind and assurances. It has to have a limit to that deterrent capability or how that deterrent capability will be used. And that is because uh, another country, particularly a great power that has a lot of capabilities itself, if you're if you're using your military, building it up in a very sort of unidimensional way, and you're increasing the threat against the other side, you want to make sure that that threat is not going to be focused on violating the most vital interests of your adversary or of the other side. Because if it does do that, the deterrence is not going to work. 
what the other side will do is they will double down on their own form of deterrence. And you will be locked into this escalating open-ended arms race um, with all the negative rhetoric surrounding it, which is what we're kind of moving towards in some respects now over, over Taiwan, I would say, in, in, many, in many aspects. Um, and you don't solve the problem. You make the problem worse. So, so you've got to be able to, A, define your interests clearly and know what you're defending, and then, B, combine that deterrence with a, with a credible, and I emphasize the word credible, level of assurance that the other side feels that, okay, you're going to deter this, but you're not going to deter that. You're not going after that. You're not going to threaten our most vital interests. And when the Taiwan issue comes up, I mean, it's, it deals fundamentally with the vital interest that the Chinese government has, which is national sovereignty. Um, their, their defense of what they regard as their national sovereignty, they regard Taiwan as a part of the sovereign state of, of, of the People's Republic of China, even though it's not under PRC control at present, that puts a whole very, very strong you know, set of imperatives on the Chinese to defend their interests in that area. So you have to be very careful that you want to deter dangerous action, but you don't want to go to the point where you're risking um, taking Taiwan away from China, as it were, where you're saying, okay, we're going to use our military power not only to deter you from doing bad things, but to ensure that you'll never be able to take Taiwan. You'll never be able to have Taiwan as part of China. I shouldn't say take Taiwan, but you'll never be able to absorb Taiwan back into China, even peacefully. Uh, we're going to use our military power to prevent that. Then you're looking at a pathway to its conflict with the Chinese. The deterrence will fail. I mean, I, I, so um, under that um, rubric, how do you think some of these conversations between Blinken and Gina Raimondo and Janet Yellen and Jake Sullivan, all of these high-level meetings that have occurred over the last month, how would they sound differently um, uh, if if we were, you know, looking at assurances as well as deterrence? Like, what could they be saying to provide those assurances when they sit in these meetings. Right. Well, I think, you know, on the, on the issue of Taiwan, they, they certainly, I mean, people like Yellen, Raimondo, Kerry, people like that really are not going to address this issue. They're not going to be talking so much about Taiwan. But, for example, the most recent Wang Yi and Jake Sullivan meeting that just took place in Malta apparently lasted for 12 hours over several wow. iterations. And according to at least Chinese reporting on this, the majority of that conversation was about Taiwan. Hmm. Now, I would be very interested to know what exactly they talked about for, let's say, seven or eight hours regarding Taiwan, because on the public level, what you see is this very rigid sort of exchange of mantras on the part of each of the two sides. The U.S. just simply trots out its standard statement. We continue to adhere to the, by the one China policy. We don't, um, we, 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 uh, we do not support Taiwan's independence, you know, full stop. Okay, you should be reassured. But the Chinese are not reassured yeah. because alongside that rhetoric, there's all kinds of things that the United States has said and done, which have moved it away from the kinds of assurances that it used to give uh, regarding Taiwan. And, and moved closer and closer to Taiwan in ways that breached the kind of commitment to unofficiality in the relationship that the U.S. should be having with Taiwan, since it doesn't recognize Taiwan as a, as a nation state, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what they need to do 
is in those conversations, Jake Sullivan, Blinken, and others who really do address these this issue, Taiwan, they need to say very clearly and unequivocally that the United States is open to any resolution of the Taiwan situation, whatever it be might be, unification, independence, as long as it's arrived at peacefully, without coercion, and with the assent of the people. We used to say the assent of the people on both sides of the strait, but now American officials only say with the assent of the people of Taiwan. But in fact, you know, in some sense, it has to be occur with the assent of both sides. But, you know, that needs to be made crystal clear. But but no U.S. official will say that today because it sounds like we're opening the door to possible unification and the Chinese might use force to do that. And so are we endorsing the Chinese using force? Well, of course we're not. Um, what, but what we're saying is we recognize the need to keep that prospect open of unification, peaceful, uncoerced unification, even though the chances of it occurring today or in any foreseeable future are virtually zero. That doesn't matter. What matters is that based upon the original understanding that we reached with the Chinese at the time of normalization on one China, we recognize that any any outcome to this situation between China and Taiwan is okay with us. We're not concerned about the outcome. We're concerned about the process, about the process. But that sounds too much like we're endorsing the Chinese right. So, so American officials will not say that today because the Congress will be down their throat. So that's one thing. Another thing that they need to say, which is part of this, is they need to be very clear about the fact that Taiwan does not represent a critical strategic location for the United States, essential to its defense posture in Asia and its overall security position in the world. I mean, this is a ridiculous concept. Taiwan is not a, it's not the, you know, Fulger Gap in Europe. It's not the Magino line. It is, it is not that one point which if it falls, Asia falls to the Chinese. I mean, this, this is such a gross simplification and distortion of the reality. Taiwan has never served that kind of role in, in American thinking in looking at its overall security posture in the region, except for some Cases under, I think, MacArthur or some people way back in the 1940s or so who would make such arguments. But the basis of U.S. policy in Asia has never been to regard Taiwan as a strategic enclave or a node, even though a U.S. official, defense official, has said that in congressional testimony. And the it has never been repeated. It has never been repeated, but it has been said recently that it is a strategic node vital to the United States position which is, I think, diametrically opposite to the one China policy. Now, the administration has not repeated that statement since then. And I think that's been a deliberate action to not repeat that statement. But it hasn't come out and clearly rebutted it. It hasn't right. said it's not a strategic note. We don't regard it as critical to our defense. Because, again, if they were to do that, the Congress, some in Congress would be all over them. I mean, they would say, what do you mean it's not... Are you kidding me? Are we saying we're giving, we're retreating from our position in Asia? We're going to let the Chinese take time? I mean, you know, you get all kinds of loviating going on. Um, but that's those are two very vital things, which I think they need to they need to come out and state much more clearly. They also should be should be much more careful about how they describe the one China policy in general. Right now, U.S. officials start off by saying the one China policy consists of the Taiwan Relations Act 
uh, the three communiques and the six assurances. Well, the Taiwan Relations Act is not the one China policy, strictly speaking. It's an addendum to the U.S. overall U.S. policy toward Taiwan, which was attached by President Reagan and by the Congress, I should say. Um, the six assurances was was something done by by President Reagan, um, which were done to assure Taiwan that the United States is going to is going to provide defensive arms to Taiwan and would stand opposed to a direct security threat by China to to Taiwan. Um, and that's sort of an addendum to the overall U.S. position. But it's not the one China position, which is more of what I had already described. But to put it first in the one China policy, in, in describing what is the one China policy, I think is a distortion of the U.S. position. And it's something new. It's something recent. The U.S. never used to do that, but it does it now. And to attach the six assurances, which are assurances that were given by Reagan, a presidential statement, they have no legal binding nature um, and they're not necessarily intended to be, you know, infinite and permanent. In fact, they, several of them were worded in a way that they indicated that they, they weren't necessarily uh, permanent. But nonetheless, the United States has now presented them as if they are a rock solid part of the one China policy not to be changed. And they're there forever. And it's the six assurances alongside the three communiques with Beijing and the TRA. And again, in the past, the United States never did that. The United States never used to to say, you know, the six assurances are a critical part of our policy. Um, they used to put it in the background and not really emphasize it. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the answer to all this by some people is, well, times have changed and we need to have more deterrence. And so this is part of our deterrence. So we get back to the issue I was saying before, which is you can't have that deterrence while you're not reassuring. And I think those kinds of changes undermine our ability to reassure the Chinese that we're not threatening um, more extreme, uh, you know, threats to their vital interests. Uh, absolutely, Michael. Thanks for coming on the show. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, as, uh, as I've heard it said uh, more than a few times uh, before, uh, China already is deterred right now, uh, constantly piling on more and more uh, military assets into the region uh, isn't, isn't helping deterrence, as you say, when it's not paired with, with those assurances. Um, you recently wrote uh, a response to an article by Craig Singleton from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in which he claimed that China had a far-reaching strategy to establish bases in many other parts of the world. Uh, you wrote that the piece was replete with distortions, exaggerations, and speculations. And uh, I agree entirely. Uh, so what's the real story about Chinese overseas bases? Well, I think the real story is, as I presented in that article um, or that that op-ed, that um, the Chinese are, have established locations. They have one solid, what you could call, military base in Djibouti on the Horn of, of Africa there, um, which was established initially to deal with piracy issues and um, has probably expanded beyond that to sustain a, a continuous PLA Navy presence in that in that area, which for the Chinese is very vital because it's a strategic line of of, of transport and such for oil. Um, so it's it's an important it's an important uh, area for them. Um, so they have a base there, um, but they also have arrangements with other countries um, to have some visitation rights um, for their military um, to to have uh, a commercial presence in various places, um, and these could at some point acquire certain types of security related facilities. Um, I think that's possible. 
But I think, as I said in that piece, the Chinese are very limited in their ability to establish what you would regard as full-blown bases. Because, first of all, they don't have they don't have the kind of security alliances that the United States has with countries around the world, um, with what are 700 or so bases, you know, maybe many of those very small facilities, but, you know, at least, you know, up to 50, 75, 100 major bases around the world. But they're with security partners. Uh, they're with allies. They're with countries for various reasons, historical and otherwise, uh, want to or accept an American military presence. Now, we can argue that it's excessive, and I do. Um, but nonetheless, there is a basis for that, and there is a receptivity to it. You can't say that about the Chinese. I mean, they haven't got alliances around the world. Uh, they they have not got necessarily a receptivity on the part of many, many countries to say, yeah, come on in, establish a big military base, no problem. The United States will oppose it and threaten us in every other way, but we don't care. I mean, it's 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 foolish to think that the Chinese are just going to waltz in and and be able to establish the kind of basing areas that the United States has done. And they may not, in fact, have that intention. I mean, I don't think they see themselves as playing the kind of global military policeman kind of role that the United States evolved into or made a decision to acquire, however you want to characterize it, um, after the Second World War for a variety of reasons that came out of that conflict and the Cold War. Um, and for the Chinese, I think they do believe that they need to have certain strategic locations where they can carry out uh, NEO um, evacuation missions if they have to for Chinese citizens, where they can provide some kind of a presence there if things go sideways um, in, in localities that, that, that local Chinese are involved to support their PKO effort. They're a big contributor to the UN peacekeeping operations around the world. So there's one area there to protect their commercial interests in various locations around the world that they may see a need for, although thus far they haven't really made that clear connection between the military and, and the protection of their commercial interests overseas. In many cases, they've kind of subcontracted that kind of security out to other entities other than themselves. Um, but they need to have the capability to at least be present in certain areas for a variety of different purposes, not necessarily to counteract American military power and challenge them as a global military hegemon. I mean, I, I think that that kind of projection, which is kind of a form of mirror imaging in a, in a way, is something that, that we should be very, very careful about doing. We shouldn't be just jumping to that conclusion that that's exactly what the Chinese are up to and that's what they'll be able to attain. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. What we have seen from a lot of these arguments uh, coming from uh, China hawks is is uh, assuming that China has these far-flung ambitions and then sort of working backwards and, and asking, well, then what must they do to achieve those ambitions without ever having demonstrated that they have them? Um, right. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it goes um, back to this, as I said in the piece, it goes back to this there was several, several years ago, it came out of, I think, Booz Allen, a U.S. corporation that China was establishing what was called a string of pearls all the way right. across from Southeast Asia to the to the, to the the uh, Middle East uh, in various locations in these different bases and such where they were, they were called bases, but that what they were were largely commercial agreements with local areas to set up uh, ports and to establish, you know, management of these ports. And, uh, yeah, okay, the Chinese had a presence on the ground in these areas. Um, some of them could have a military utility in the future, but it was far away from this kind of 
cohesive, coherent, strategic, well thought through, coordinated, you know, step by step movement towards a global, a a, a high intensity regional military presence. Um, we don't see anything like that from the Chinese at this point. That's for sure. Now, turning turning back to China, uh, lately they've been dealing with some some high level uh, personnel issues. Uh, the Chinese Defense Minister Li Shengfu is under investigation, uh, apparently for corruption, and seems to have been removed from his position. This comes a few weeks after the Foreign Minister Qin Gong was also removed from his post. Uh, now there's a report that uh, that was related to to his own uh, personal conduct. Uh, what do we know about the circumstances surrounding the removal of both officials? Uh, and uh, might there actually be an opportunity now to establish direct military contacts with the Chinese government uh, now that U.S. sanctions on Li are presumably no longer an issue? Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, if Li if Li Shangfu is gone, then the, the issue of sanctioning Li Shangfu is gone too. But I mean, the I I don't know. I don't have an easy answer, uh, Daniel, to your to your question about what exactly is is going on with these removals. I mean, there clearly is, I think, and you also had the removal of certain uh, military officers who were in the artillery uh, division of the Chinese government. Right. And and those, you know, all of these, I think, are most likely related to some kind of personal malfeasance, corruption, or something as in the case of Xingang, apparently he had a mistress on the side um, uh, from a foreign country. Um, and so there's some kind of a foreigner element involved in this as well. But we don't know. We just do not know um, what what the implications of, of this are. What was the second half of your of your question? Of, uh, oh, just, just uh, if there might be an opportunity to establish those military to military. Oh, yeah. Now. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think that the. I mean, the U.S., the U.S. and Chinese militaries are not without communication. They They are communicating. Um, and and uh, but they're just not communicating very well. Um, they they do have interactions with each other. Um, the the problem is that that as part of the general souring of the relationship that has occurred in in recent years, and particularly after the balloon incident that happened, and after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and all of the acrimony that resulted from all of that on both sides, it has had this knock on effect. Um, on uh, this this you know secondary effect on on the mill mill relationship, and that has hurt the ongoing crisis communication dialogue that the Chinese and the American military have had for um, some time. They they haven't met very often, but they began a dialogue um, on crisis communication. Um, it was uh, I th even though it wasn't officially ended by these um, as, as a Chinese reaction to the American. Um, behaviors that I just mentioned. Um, nonetheless, um, it, it, it was damaged by it. And, and there's, there's now this kind of hesitancy to get back into doing this. And I and others are trying to uh, assist in trying to get this, this back on track in, in some ways on a track two level, at least, um, to have communications on crisis issues that could hopefully be of use to the track one level, the official level, on both sides, because it's that area that I think is by far the most vital. The U.S. and China have to start talking more meaningfully, more substantively about how they can avert escalation in any kind of crisis that might occur over Taiwan, South China Sea dispute issues, whatever. There needs to be a much better sense of an ability to communicate 
um, restraint on both sides in the event of such a crisis, because the current dynamic is such that both sides are inclined to assume the worst about the other's motives in a crisis, to be very suspicious about what they're doing, and to try to double down on signals of resolve, on again, on deterrence signaling in a crisis, to try and t- caution the other side, don't, don't do anything funny. And, and that can lead to overreaction on the part of both sides. And you get into this dynamic here, which could accelerate and become you know, up to the level of a conflict. The biggest danger of that, of course, is over Taiwan. So you need to have a communication link there that is reliable, uh, where the people involved have some level, even though it's modicum, some level of trust with each other that what they're saying can actually be believed. And you have to have an understanding that there are certain pitfalls you want to avoid in signaling with each other. Certain things you do want to do, certain things you don't want to do by and large, in trying to avoid inadvertent escalation. And on the track two level, the U.S. and China have, by and large, agreed to these kinds of guidelines for effective crisis management. What we need to do now is move that up to the track one level, get a clear recognition from both sides about these do's and don'ts, and establish a clear communication channel between them so that they can signal these things to each other. And we don't yet have that. And I think that's uh, that that should be an imperative on the part of the governments on both sides. And I should add, it's not just a military to military issue. Um, it's if we have a crisis with the Chinese over Taiwan or whatever, it is very quickly going to escalate above the level of military decision makers. I mean, it's going to involve the national security leadership of both countries, civilians. So civilians need to themselves get more directly involved in crisis communication dialogues as well, so that they, not just the military, but they understand and absorb and digest what are the pitfalls, what are the right ways of communicating, what are the channels here that we can use, and how do we best use these channels. Civilians need to take a much bigger role in the up until this point in time, largely mill-mill crisis communication dialogue that has been that has existed. Michael, I know we're running out of time, but I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've been working together for, I think, almost three years now. Are are you, do you feel that we're any more closer to going to war than you were, say, uh, three years ago when these tensions were becoming more and more apparent? I mean, you listen to the rhetoric in Washington, it's like we're on the verge of war every single day with China. But how do you feel as an analyst who's steeped in these issues? Do you feel more concerned or a little less concerned? Or well, I'm, 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 I'm not concerned about the near term. You know, I don't think the Chinese are sitting there gun cocked, ready to go. And as soon as they put that last brigade in place, as soon as they get that last bit of military capability, they're going to go. That, that, that it's all a measure of military capability. Once they're confident that they can win, they're going to go. Um, I think that in part because, you know, that's a, that's a hopelessly simplistic way of, of characterizing how the Chinese look at the problem. A. B, um, there is no simple magic bullet that is going to lead the Chinese, I don't think, to, to, to conclude that, oh, we can now succeed very confidently if we want to try to seize Taiwan by force. It's always going to be a roll of the dice, a major roll of the dice a very dangerous roll of the dice with huge consequences. All the simulations that have been done on this. I mean, people talk about, oh, every time the Chinese win, that's baloney. What happens is you have this knockdown, drag out fight with both sides bloodied 
badly with the potential for escalation to even the nuclear level, um, there is no clear winner. You might stop the Chinese from seizing Taiwan. The Chinese are not going to easily seize Taiwan. They're not going to be able to just waltz in and grab it at minimal cost. It will be huge. The and the implications will go far beyond just the military area to the geoeconomic area, going beyond even just Asia. So, you know, there, there's a huge amount of, there are a lot of reasons why the Chinese wouldn't do this, uh, particularly in the short term. So I'm not concerned about that. What I'm more concerned about is that we have the evolution of a mode of thinking in this country and in China that that is increasingly, as I say, oriented towards doubling down on signals of deterrence, and that that type of deterrence becomes increasingly radical. That what we have is not just well, we need to state more clearly that we really, you know, that 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 that, that we're really ready to, you know, come come to the defense of of Taiwan if if necessary. But we have to really, you know, we still have to consult with the Congress. No, that people say, forget all that. We're going to give a solid security guarantee to the Taiwanese. No matter what happens, we're always going to be there to defend them. Um, we could end end up with that. And to, by the way, to be to make that possible, we need to have a U.S. forces on the ground in Taiwan, or we need to have a U.S. A military U.S. warships regularly visiting Taiwan, or we need to have large scale joint military exercises with Taiwan, or we need to have, you know, a clear statement of strategic clarity as I as as is you know the big issue of debate here in supporting Taiwan and everything that goes with it. Now, if if you have that and you put those sorts of things in place, and I don't think the Biden administration has any intention of doing that, I'm not so sure that a Republican administration, even a Donald Trump administration, and Donald Trump doesn't care two wits about Taiwan. I don't think Donald Trump thinks Taiwan is important to anything, but he does think it's important that he shows that he's a tough leader, that he shows that he's not going to be bullied by the Chinese, that he shows that he can't be, you know, stared down by the Chinese. Therefore, he's willing to consider doing all manner of stupid things. So you could have a Trump administration with advisors that he might select, who, are, if they're as, as bad as they were the first time around on the issue of China, could very well lead us into a conflict with the Chinese because of actions taken by the United States and overreactions by the Chinese. Yeah. Radical deterrence. Can I use that? Sure. <laughs> Opposing radical deterrence. Yes. Opposing radical deterrence. One dimensional <laughs> radical deterrence. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Um, I am going to affix all of your great research uh, in our show notes because I really want readers to bone up on all of um, everything that you've said today, but uh, all of the research that you've done to, to back it up over the last few years um, that I, we've been working together. So thank you so much for sharing. I know we only scratched the surface, but I really appreciate it. Sure. sure great. And thanks for writing the stuff you write, Dan. I, I enjoy oh. reading it. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. 
Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. 